0: Good morning. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from 1 Samuel chapter 5. And if you're using a Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 228. 1 Samuel chapter 5 it says this. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Ashdod our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the Lord of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out among them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own people that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray together. God, as we gather here once again to hear your word proclaimed, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts as the hearers to open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us, that we would be willing to change in whatever way you have set before us. I pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to proclaim your word, give him boldness and power as he speaks not on his own authority, but on your authority, God. Pray that all things would glorify you this morning and that ultimately, God, we would do it because of everything that Jesus has done for us. And I pray all these things in his name. Amen.
1: I think that it's fairly obvious, if we just look around, that we as a society are trending toward the casual. Uh, We're trending toward the casual in our language. Formalities such as subject-verb agreement and spelling are rare and disposable commodities these days. And so through text speak and memes and emojis and gifs or gifs, however you're supposed to say that word, these are the ways that we communicate with one another. Don't send the wrong emoji because that can just ruin an entire friendship. But we haven't just gone casual in our language. We are more casual in dress. I mean, sure, there are still occasions and professions that call for more formality, but on the whole, we are a more casual society. If you need more convincing, just as soon as the last amen, take a trip to Walmart, right, where pajama pants are the new jeans, jeans are the new khakis, and khakis, well, they shop at Target, all right? So, I mean, this is—we've just gone more casual, and it's even true as you look around this room. I mean, it wasn't too long ago. I mean, when a church like this would be full of uh, ladies in more uh, dress—you know, dresses all over the place—and men in suits and ties, deacons with ties that don't fully cover their torso, and pastors in suits. I mean, there was a day when you could actually remember the first time you saw your pastor not wearing a suit. Wearing something other than a suit. And it was very unusual because he was out of uniform. But we've gone very casual. And, you know, I love to wear a button-down and sweaters most weeks. But, you know, one of, the, one of the places, the place, if you will, that while everything else trends casual, the place that we cannot trend casual, friends, is in our approach to God in our approach to Him, how we think of Him, how we speak of Him, how we sing to Him, how we pray to Him, how we serve Him, how we obey Him. We cannot be casual here because God will not be taken casually. God is the creator of the universe, the Holy One. There's none like Him. He's eternal, unchangeable. He's the sovereign rule over every molecule at every moment. And without God's sustaining power, we would disintegrate into nothingness. He will not be taken casually. God is the source of all wisdom. His wisdom is beyond comprehension. He's the source of all truth. He's the source of all morality. Whatever you think is right, if it is right, it is right because it conforms to His character and His will. If it is wrong, it is wrong because it violates His character and His will. And He is the final judge of all mankind. And He is a good judge who will carry out perfect Justice and our eternal future rests in His hands. He will not be taken casually. I told this story before, but I think it's been many years. As a youth pastor, I came in one night to a Wednesday night, and a young man named Chris, who I liked very much, he was very young in his faith, Uh, and a very excited young man he came in and he wanted me to see his hat the hat that he had got and his hat said it was black and in all white letters large caps it said Jesus is my homeboy and I took it I looked at it said thank you for showing me never wear this again he is a friend who is closer to a brother closer than a brother, but He is God. He will not be taken casually. And as we come back to our study of 1 Samuel, we actually find that the Israelites have taken Him casually. Last week in chapter 4, we saw that they took the Ark of the Covenant, which should stir reverence and awe and wonder for God, and they treated it like a good luck charm well, we lost the first part of the battle. Somebody run, get the ark, so we'll win the second part. They treated it casually. And so, this symbol of God's presence, of intimacy with Him, the ark, was taken from them. But not only that, the priests who had taken God casually, Hophni and Phinehas and their father Eli, are all dead before the end of chapter 4. And so, it's no wonder, it's with great trembling that we should think about the words that come at the end of chapter 4, which is, The glory has departed. The glory has departed. But the casual approach to God does not end with the last period of chapter 4. It carries on into chapters 5 and 6, which is what we will consider today. And what we learn from these texts, from these chapters, is that God will not be taken casually. I want you to imagine that you are that, that, that later on, after all of the things with David happened, and as king after king is raised up only to be called either good or evil based on what he does and you go back and you go you go to the temple and first samuel 5 and 6 is read and you see how the nation continues to treat god casually the warning started way back when you will have no other gods before me and god will not be taken casually Boy, if we can walk in and out of chapters 5 and 6 and think that we can just be nonchalant with God, we have missed the entire point. So let's seek to not miss the entire point, shall we? So first of all, God will not be taken casually by His enemies, by His enemies. This is the biggest part of the story, so we'll spend the most time here. Now, you may be aware in the ancient Near East, it was very common to see military battles with spiritual eyes so that in victory or defeat you saw that your God was either superior to the other army's God or your God was defeated by the other army's God. And there was this back and forth and back and forth. So with the defeat of Israel in chapter 4, it's only natural for the Philistines to say, our God has defeated your God. And so they take the ark, the symbol of the God of Israel, and they put it in the house of their victorious God, Dagon. And it's there to humiliate Israel, to humiliate Israel's God. But let's read again what happens, beginning in verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him." All right, so picture the first morning, right? The priests of Dagon call their assistants and say, boys, open up the doors, flip on the lights. It's time to get started with today's worship. So they do. They open up the doors and they flip on the lights, you know, and then the first Philistine worshipers arrive and they all see it. Dagon is face down before the ark. Well, now this makes it look like he's worshiping Israel's God. We can't have that. Pick it back up. So they pick it back up, and they put it in its place. Now, that seems like something, but isn't that ironic? People having to pick up a god and put it back in place? Doesn't it seem ironic to you? Well, they miss the irony completely. So they go through their day. They go to bed that night. The next morning, the priests of Dagon send the assistants, open up the doors and turn on the lights. It's time for another day. So they open up the doors, they turn on the lights, and there's Dagon again. But this time his head is cut off, and his hands are cut off. And that is really significant. You see, a victorious army would often cut off the head and the hands of those who were defeated. As both trophies and to keep count of how many they killed. So later, when King Saul dies by his own sword, the Philistines find his body and they take off his head. And do you know where they put it? They hang it up in a prominent place on the wall in the temple of Dagon. The head was a trophy of victory. And here in Ashdod, Dagon's been defeated. You see, the Lord needs no army He wasn't upset because the Israelites hadn't carried the ark into the battle. The Lord needs no one. He spoke and everything came into existence, you see. All these other idols, they have mouths, but they can't talk. They have hands, but they can't do anything. They got feet, but they can't walk anywhere. They got noses, but they can't smell. They got eyes, but they can't see. But the God of Israel can do all of that and more with the simple thought that emanates from his mind. And so, the leader of the Philistine army, if you will, is lying, head cut off, hands cut off, a trophy of victory for the God of Israel. Now, you may wonder, when you look at a scene like that, you think, how how, how does that connect to us today? Well, friends, isn't it true that many people today presume to take God, bring Him into the temple of our society, and place Him at the feet of the God of self? And in the house of the God of self, there's only one law, tolerance. No absolutes may be proclaimed. No belief or lifestyle choice may be questioned or rebuked. No teaching may be rebuked except that belief and teaching which rebukes sin. That is the only one that may be rebuked. But friend... The image of Dagon, headless and handless, should be a sober warning. You see, the day will come when the God of self will fall, and its hands and its head will be cut off, and it will be shown as the empty and impotent God that it actually is. People think that they are pursuing fulfillment when they pursue self, but they are pursuing the wind according to the book of Ecclesiastes. You're just not going to find it. You're just not going to get your head around it. it is vanity. Vanity. All of it is vanity. And so here is Dagon. But before we go on, I wonder, do you seek to lay God at your feet? Would you just prefer it that God get to your feet and do what you would like Him to do? That He would bow to your version of truth? That He would bow to your moral choices? Do you expect God to meet your demands like a cosmic genie? God will not be taken casually, brothers and sisters. And then when you look beyond the house of Dagon to the Philistine society at large... While the hands of Dagon are on the ground and useless, the hand of the Lord is at work. And actually, the rest of chapter 5 is bookended by that. So look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And then the end of verse 11. The hand of God was very heavy there. And what is the hand of the Lord doing? bringing judgment on His people. The end of verse 6, He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And this judgment spreads like the plague. And I say that intentionally because what they are experiencing is most likely something like the bubonic plague, which is why later when they make the images to send with the ark back to Israel, they don't just make tumors out of gold. They make mice out of gold because it was believed at that time that that's how that kind of disease spread. But we'll get to that in just a bit. The ark passes from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, and the plague goes with it. And the Philistines want this thing gone like now, like yesterday. So they go to the priests, and this is where we get to chapter 6. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Philistines called for the priests and the viners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So, the truth becomes known here. The Philistines are guilty. They have offended the God of Israel. And so they are to send a guilt offering is the suggestion of their priests. Uh, So let me just lay it out for you, and this is covered in uh, verses 5 to 9. But step one, uh, let's build a new cart. All right, we're going to build a cart. That way we can put the ark on it. We're going to fashion gold tumors to represent the plague and Gold mice to represent the plague, and we're going to send that as our offering. We're going to put it in a box next to the ark on the cart. Next step, get a couple of cows that have just had calves. Cows that would much prefer to be with their calves, who've never been yoked before, and yoke them to the cart. And then what you've got to do is you've got to aim that thing toward Beth Shemesh, which is the nearest territory of Israel. And the last step is watch and Wait. Because look and see what the priests say in verse 9. They say, If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is He, he, meaning the God of Israel, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not His hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. In other words, these priests who are pagan, who only know something about the God of Israel, they say that... As they're explaining uh, what they ought to do, they point back to the... Everybody knows what happened in Egypt. Everybody knows, and they make reference to it. You remember when the hand of God went against Egypt? Well, the hand of God is against us, and we need to get rid of this ark. And so as they're, as they're doing this, uh, they basically say, you know, if it actually just goes straight and the cows don't turn back to come get their calves and all that then we know it was God. But if they waver, it's just bad luck. Just bad luck. It's just coincidence. It just happened. Well, it's quite a plan. Look what happens. Verse 10, "'The men did so, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of of their tumors.'" And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. That's interesting. Did you notice the cows? Did you notice what they were doing? They're lowing as they go. That's the the most interesting detail to put in right there. He doesn't just say they go. They go and they're lowing as they go. They're making all kinds of racket. Why? Because these cows, by instinct, would be with their calves. But they can't turn back because the hand of God is taking them to Beth Shemesh. You see, their straight line back to Israel is a divine message from God to them and to us which says, what has happened to them is from Me. And quite frankly, when you read what they've done when they've belittled God like this, it's because they did not give Him the honor that He is due. They treated Him casually. I mean, the Lord didn't prescribe this plan to the priests. Uh, It's a bit of a different kind of Gideon in the fleece, isn't it? They just kind of come up with something. They're like, well, here's what we'll do. And God says, that's fine. That's what I'll do. I will demonstrate to you that I am the one that you will bow to me like Dagon did. That at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But before we go on, isn't it interesting? Think of how the Philistines respond to their guilt. Okay? Think of it. They don't even really know they're guilty, but they go to the priest because they need help with their guilt. And what do they want to do? They want to get away from God. They are guilty, so get away from God. If we can just get far enough away from God, everything, I will not feel so guilty if I just get away from God. And the second thing they do is they go to the priests. They go find some man-made counsel. They don't say, well, this is the God of Israel. We ought to go ask the Israelite priests what we ought to do in order to deal with our guilt. No, they don't do that. They go to their own, self, their own man-made priests and they say, well, you know, the cart and the cows and the golden images and these things. Now, I point that out because isn't it compelling that so many people today respond to their sin and their guilt in these exact ways? They respond by pushing God away. They tried, church, but it didn't work. Just hearing about sin and hearing about my need for forgiveness made me feel more guilty. The pressure didn't lighten up. My, apparently, I didn't get enough credit for all my church attendance because my circumstances didn't change. I don't feel any better. So they get away. And if they can't silence the voice by getting away from church, they'll silence the voice by trying to drown it out in things like alcohol or prescription drugs or bowls of ice cream or three-hour workouts or mindless activity on with television or YouTube or gaming anything to stop the voices from making me feel so guilty I just have to get away from the guilt and these I just push everything away that would keep telling me I'm guilty maybe they cut off family members that keep telling them how to handle their guilt according to God But isn't it also true that people deal with guilt by turning to man-made counsel, to the priests of our culture, to to the self-help authors and gurus, to therapists, to secular psychology? And quite frankly, these priests mean well. They do. They mean well. They listen well. They really want to help. They want to relieve the guilt. They want to do what is necessary to help them relieve the guilt, but they fail to do so because Just like the new cart that took the ark back to Israel, man-made counsel is just a fancier way of trying to get away from God and suppress your guilt, of just wanting to feel better. But the problem is, our guilt is real, and it will not go away, even if we can drown the voices temporarily of guilt in our lives. They will always return. And even if somehow, by some incredible feat of, of, of will, we somehow keep the, the voices of guilt from messing with us during this life, they will only resonate in the life to come. Because at that point, there will be no running from God. There will be no getting away. There will be no alternative. There will be, and there is no other way, friend, right now for you to deal with your guilt than to go to God and deal with guilt the way that He prescribes to deal with guilt. He doesn't want you to throw some golden images into the offering plate. He wants you to bow before Him in humility and accept the sacrifice that He has made for you. And these other approaches, quite frankly, take God casually. They say, well, God said things about this, but I'm pretty sure that, I mean, we're pretty far in society. This is 2020, after all. We've got some pretty good ideas about human nature and about how to deal with problems. So we can handle this. But the relief won't come. But the story actually gets sadder than that. Because the casual approach to God isn't just a problem for God's enemies. We're going to keep going, but that's where we go. It's not just a problem with the people out there. Oh, you know all those people in society. You know all those people. They take God very casually, but not us. I mean, we're here this morning. Doesn't that say something? I sang this morning. Doesn't that say something? I've got my Bible open right now. Doesn't that say something? Well, the ark gets back to Israel, and God will not be taken casually, not only by His enemies, but He will not be taken casually by His people. So I want you to imagine that the the curtain pulls back, and there's Joshua. Not Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Joshua but Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and he's there in his field, and there are others working with him, alongside him, and they look up to the horizon, and there are, there's a silhouette coming on the horizon. It's not, it's not people. They're, they're cows, and they seem to be pulling a cart, and as it gets closer, the image gets clearer. Is, th- is, that, is that what I think it is? Is that the ark? It's the ark. So, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 6, Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. So rejoicing breaks out. Everybody's hugging everyone. They're dancing. They're shouting. This is not a Baptist church. They're dancing. They're shouting. They're, 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 they're doing all these manner of things. And they are just re- over the top with joy. That sounds like a pretty good sign. Then they say, well, here's a hard surface right here. What we're going to do is we're going to bust up the cart so we can make a fire and we're going to sacrifice these cows to the Lord, and we're going to burn a burnt offering of these cows to the Lord in our joy for the return of the ark. Seems like another good sign. Maybe these Israelites know what they've been missing. Maybe they realize how foolish they've been to treat the ark of God like a good luck charm. Maybe they're ready to repent. Sadly, that is not the case. And it's hinted at, When the Levites, in verse 15, take the ark and the box beside it and set them upon the great stone. It seems like just an action, but friends, the Levites know the law. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, when it was time to move from one place to another... There was basically a triple cover put on the ark so that no one could just gawk at it as they move. It was to be covered. And these Levites, when they see the ark, should have found the nearest thing to cover it up and cover it up because this is the ark of the God who is holy and who is our Redeemer. And who will not be approached casually, but they do not do it. They set it out as a display on a stone with the tumors and the mice right next to it. And that's not the only problem. The Levites aren't the only problem. Verse 19 God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The hand of the Lord did not just bring judgment to God's enemies, but those who claim to be God's people, but those who are not obviously taking God very seriously at all. Now, some Some uh, translations say it was 70 men. Others say it was 50,070 men. I'll let you sort that out over lunch, but let me just tell you, there are dead bodies on the ground. There are dead bodies on the ground because God will not be taken casually. But the problem isn't just that they happen to catch it in their, their peripheral vision. The problem isn't that they just got a casual look. This word, looked, in verse 19 means they inspected it. They took a long, hard look at it. They gawked at it. If they had had iPhones, they'd have taken a selfie with it. That is how casually they are taking the ark of the God of Israel. So here's this joyful worship service, and everything seems good, but after the last amen, it's as if they haven't encountered God at all. It was just this fleeting moment of emotion. you know what that means? Their approach to God is no different than the Philistines' approach to God. How sad is it that in the American church today that our approach to God is often no different than the world's approach to God? Oh, we may have a moment of reverence on a Sunday morning or some solemn occasion, but in truth it's just a tradition, a routine, it's what my parents make me do, it's what my wife wants me to do. And after the last amen, we feel like we've done our honoring God part of the week, and now it's back to my life, back to real life. What a dangerous approach to God. To have your lips in the service honoring Him, and your heart is chasing after something else. And even once people die, the Israelites don't get it. They respond to their guilt the same way the Philistines did. Let me show you because we didn't read it yet. Look at verse 20. After this great blow, look what happens. Then the men of Beth said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall He go up away from us? In other words, what they're saying is this is hopeless. We were happy it was back, but look what happened. Get this thing away from us. Get it away Now, their question in verse 20, even though it is not sincere, is a great question, isn't it? It is a great question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They know they can't, but instead of bow in repentance, they just want to get it away. So in verse 21, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. You see, you thought that whole business about pushing away from God when dealing with guilt, that that was about all those people out there. But apparently it infects people in here too. That rather than deal with guilt in confession and repentance, we just want to push God away. So maybe it begins with negligence of things like Bible reading and prayer. And it begins to develop in stepping away from serving others in the church. And then it blossoms into neglecting church attendance a lot of the time, then all of the time. And if one wants to soothe his conscience about this whole church-going deal, well, I just feel like I should probably be in a different church. Because then I don't have to come and see the faces of people who know I'm guilty. The people who know me. The people who love me. The people God gave to me to help me in situations just like this. Now look, brothers and sisters, if you take notice of someone who is beginning to neglect the gathering of God's people, do not wait for a pastor or someone else to take notice. You just go. We are to take responsibility for one another. Guilt may not be the issue of why there has been negligence, but it may And going to another church doesn't solve the problem of guilt. Going to God solves the problem of guilt. We must be people who respond to sin and guilt as God says we should, in confession and in repentance toward Him and then toward the others that we have hurt. And when we confess, the Bible assures us in 1 John 1 that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we're on the receiving end of that confession, the Bible tells us to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. That we are, in the same way that God freely forgives, we are to freely forgive. And this kind of obedience... Is a practical way to take God seriously. You want to know if you take God seriously or not? Ask yourself do I obey Him when He tells me what I ought to do? There's a surefire way to know whether you take God seriously or not. As you remember when you were like a kid and your parents are giving you whatever talk that they're giving you and you like are in. You're in zone 12, right? You're out like in outer space. You have zoned out somehow, and they say something like, Are you even listening? You need to pay attention. Why? Because you're not taking whatever it is seriously. You're just like, you know, you just go into that flat line. I'm waiting for the end. I know the cadence of when you're about to be done, and then I'll wake back up and go back to whatever I was doing. Well, such an approach to our parents does not take them seriously. So how much more is it that when we hear the words of God, we just kind of say, well, I'm just kind of waiting until the end here, and we're going to get out, and I'm just going to get on my merry way. That is not taking the Lord seriously. Obedience is one of the ways we can express that we take God's word seriously. We take God seriously. Now consider the question of the Israelites again. He will not be taken casually by his enemies. He will not be taken casually by his people. So question, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Dagon couldn't. The Philistines couldn't. Not even the Israelites could stand. Why? Psalm 24, who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only one can stand before Him. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus stands before the Lord, the only one perfect in righteousness, the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. And Jesus stands before the Lord in our place, and the hand of the Lord, which should strike us with judgment, struck Him with judgment at the cross. And then Jesus was laid in a tomb. And like the night the ark arrived in Ashdod and was laid in Dagon's temple, Jesus is presumed to be defeated. It is over. But at the dawn of the third day, He is raised from the dead and sin and death and hell, and the devil himself are lying flat on the ground, head cut off, hands cut off, defeated forever. That is the good news. We are people who could never stand before the Lord. So God has sent His Son to stand in our place so that we who are dead in our graves of sin and transgression are lifted up and made to be able to stand in Him. Before the Lord. That's good news. You see, by nature, we are sinful human beings. And as such, we face the hand of God's judgment. And Deuteronomy 32 says, There is none that can deliver out of my hand. But, dear friend, if you will turn from your sin, if you will stop trying to deal with your guilt in your way, if you will stop running from God and run to Him in repentance, cling to Jesus Christ alone. Cling to His death for your sin. Cling to His righteousness as the only hope of making it when we get before God if you will turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it won't be the hand of God's judgment that grips you forever. It will be the hand of His grace, His mercy, and His love that grips you. And Jesus said of those who are in God's hand of love, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. You see, in the end, we're all in the hand of God. The question you must reckon with this morning, and the question that I must reckon with, not when we're sitting in a church like this, but when you lay your head at night and you think about this question, think about the fact that you're going to be in the hand of God forever. The question that you must answer, that only God Himself can help you answer, is this Will it be the hand of judgment? Or will it be the hand of love? Either way, God will not be taken casually. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before You, recognizing that You are worthy of praise, and honor, and glory, and blessing, that You alone deserve our life, our soul, our all, and Father, we, as those who live in a casual society, we want to be guarded against being casual in our approach to You. How often does Your name, Lord, enter places where it is not revered in our conversation, in our satire, in our jokes? Lord, would You remind us, even now, by Your grace, that when we do such things, we are acting more as Your enemies than as Your people as Your children. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know You, who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that even now, where they are at, they will cry out to You and confess their sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, That You, by Your grace, will radically change them. That they will be saved. Lord, we pray that we as a church will be those who are both joyful before You, intimate with You, and sober before You. Help us in our joy and in our intimacy to never take You casually. And so we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with each one of us this day and in the days to come and forevermore. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.